Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're here today for Spirit in Action at the campus of Grinnell College in Iowa as part of the annual Friends General Conference gathering, and we've got a small audience in person with us, while today's guest is with us virtually via Skype. George Lakey is an amazing inspiration, and you know this well if you've listened to my previous interviews with him about his work with Training for Change, it's an awesome organization, and his readable and inspiring and deep books like Viking Economics and his most recent, How We Win. These programs and more can be found on northernspiritradio.org, and I'm sure we'll have some bonus excerpts that won't fit into the broadcast version of this interview. I also want to thank Andrew Jansen up front for production assistance on today's program. I interviewed George about how we win earlier this year, and he offered to talk with me while at this gathering about a topic of his own suggestion— what I have learned about nonviolence from Bayard Rustin and other Quakers who preceded me. Let's talk now with George Lakey, virtually in person, before a small audience. George, it's wonderful to have you back again for Spirit in Action. It's not been very long since I interviewed you about how we win, but you have been touring a major portion, I think, of that time, haven't you? Yes, I'm away a whole lot. I've done both coasts also Utah, Colorado, Illinois, and I want to do more of the Midwest. We talked about six or so months ago, seven months ago, about how we win. I knew that you were intending, at least at that point, to be here at the FGC gathering in Grinnell, but obviously that changed. And so I wanted to bring you here because there was a topic that you mentioned to me was near and dear to your heart. You said, what I have learned about nonviolence from Bayard Rustin and other Quakers who preceded me. First of all, the people who haven't heard of from you before, you did not grow up Quaker. Could you say a little bit about where you grew up and when you came to Friends? Yeah, I grew up in a rural Pennsylvania in a small town and was very religious boy and was really glad to go to the evangelical fundamentalist church that I went to, sang in the choir and all of that kind of thing, led the youth fellowship. So I was very, very uh, convinced and then went to college and fell in with Quakers by going around to the different churches that were in that town. My own church wasn't there. And I was immediately, very first meeting for worship, it struck me, whoa, this idea of direct communication and us listening to the Spirit and sharing what seems meant to be shared is a fantastic idea. On the other hand, on the way out, I was looking at the bulletin board because I'm a compulsive reader of bulletin boards. And there was on the Quaker bulletin board a wish that we should write our congresspeople and oppose universal military service. And I thought, oh, no, I have heard someplace that Quakers are pacifists. What a dumb thing that is. So I was very upset because Quakers' worship seemed great. 
but this eccentricity of being pacifist. So I, I took the long way home because I wanted to try to think this through. Should I even bother going back with people who are so foolish as to be pacifist? And then I decided that I would forgive them this eccentricity in the magnanimity of my 19-year-old heart and give Quakers more chance, at least on the worship end. Obviously, participating in Quaker meeting sent me into a major search within which also involved a lot of research, reading a lot about Quaker experience on the American frontier, reading about all sorts of things that pacifist pioneers engaged in. And in a year's time, I turned myself around, or maybe was turned by the spirit around 180 degrees and had become a pacifist. Did you have any social justice or other forms of influence in your early religious before you came to Friends? Well, when I was 12 years old, the elders in my church noticed how religious I was, and there was in my denomination, and some others also on the evangelical side, a belief that God can touch a youngster and inspire them to preach. And so they decided to give me a tryout because maybe I had the makings of a boy preacher, which would mean that I would go on the circuit and speak at other churches as a boy preacher. So they said, one month from today, you get the pulpit and you get to give the sermon. I was flabbergasted, never imagining I would get a chance to preach a sermon. So then the big question was, what on earth do I preach about? I haven't been to seminary or anything like that. So I prayed and prayed and prayed. And what God told me to speak about was that it was God's will that there be racial equality. (laughs) Now, this is 1949 in a rural town, all white town in Pennsylvania. You can imagine. And so at the end of the service, our custom was that the minister would go to the front of the church and and shake hands with people as they left. And so I was to accompany that person and the minister. And so I did that. And then the elders kind of clustered around me and the minister. And I got the very strong impression, don't call us, we'll call you. (laughs) So that was the end of my preaching career. It was a one day preaching career because I made the huge mistake of saying that God wants racial equality. Do you remember where you drew that from? I, I think I could name sources, but at 12 years old, did you have the sources? Well, I was a Jesus boy, and I still am very close to Jesus. And so that just seemed obvious to me. What could the Good Samaritan parable mean other than that? Or talking to the woman at the well, or you know, just all kinds of ways that Jesus reached out to the marginals and showed that everyone is to be respected and no one is to be put down. That just seemed to me very, very strongly presented in the Gospels. Very clearly. I think the Good Samaritan, I think if that was spoken today, it would probably be the Good Muslim. That's right. A big part, though, that speaks to your question, your theme about early influences on me in terms of social action, my worldview, and I don't know where I got this worldview, but my worldview as a 19-year-old was that there are not two truths in the universe. There's only one truth in the universe. And so you should pursue the truth rather than have a compartmentalization. And what I noticed was a lot of people were imagining there's an ethical truth on the one hand, what we ought to do. And then on the other hand, there's a pragmatic truth, what we must do in order to get results. That just struck me as an impossible proposition. 
I don't know why I thought God would create just one reality, but that's what I thought God created. And there was only one reality, and we had to come to terms. So it seemed to me then, whenever we encounter, and we plenty of times encounter in daily life, times when it looks like our ethical guidance says one thing, and our practical wish to get something done says something different. Whenever that happens, that's not a problem with reality. That's a problem with our perception. And what it is, it's an invitation to reconcile those two, to discover what's the truth here in this conflict that I'm not getting. So it's back to the drawing board, or it's to the lab, or whatever it is, whatever means you use to search for truth. It could be back to Meeting House. And we've got to reconcile those things, not make an easy, oh, yes, well, that's very nice to do because that's the ethical proposition. But on the other hand, it's practical to, you know, to drop a bomb on Hiroshima. So let's just go ahead and do that. That was completely unacceptable to me. So it's so, therefore, in my year of search with regard to this craziness that Quakers had of a pacifist conviction, I needed to satisfy myself that this was not only an ethical thing, but also a practical thing. Because God's truth is not two part, it's one part. And so I needed not only to research the ethical side, but also I needed to research the practical side. And fortunately, I was hanging out with Quakers in my meeting who knew Bayard Russin, who knew of Lucretia Ma, who knew other people who had trodden this path before and knew that they figured out in situations that were quizzical how it is possible to do both. That is, find the course that is both moral and practical at the same time. And I needed to satisfy myself with that before I could come to a conclusion. And I satisfied myself that what seems to be a conflict can be reconciled. I've been doing that ever since. As recently as being a professor at Swarthmore College, I offered a course to students called Nonviolent Ways of Handling the Terrorist Threat. Right. And they came in and they were jamming the classroom. Very excited about this. I said, "Okay, the course is you have to imagine yourself a consultant to some nation in the world that is presently threatened with terrorism. Now, your task will be as consultant to come up with a nonviolent strategy for handling that threat from terrorism. I will give you a toolbox of eight tools. Most of the classroom work we do will be learning these eight tools. That'll be your toolbox. Your job and all your grade is going to depend on your effectiveness at the end of the semester to present a paper that shows the government, whichever government you choose, Israel or the U.S. or wherever, that this is the strategy based on nonviolent means that you've devised will be an effective way at dealing with the terrorist threat. Well, that seemed to me like a very plausible kind of classroom assignment. They loved it. Swarthmore students are notorious for loving to work hard. They worked and sweated. They came up with amazing stuff. The course was denounced nationally by a right-wing foundation that put it on the list of the 10 worst courses being taught in America today. My colleagues at Swarthmore, of course, were congratulating me. The president dropped me a note. Well done, George. It's a great list to be on. And I had a great time, and the students <laughs> had a great time. So you can tell that my orientation is so strongly this that I don't understand an American peace movement that doesn't do that kind of work, for example, that after 9-11, there wasn't a think tank immediately set up of our best and brightest peace people to develop a plausible 
practical, nonviolent way of handling terrorism instead of the war on terrorism. I challenged the, you know, one of our major Quaker organizations to undertake that task. They refused. I just couldn't understand. Why would we as Quakers want to live with a situation where it seems like our peace testimony is saying one thing and our chances for survival are saying something different? That doesn't make any sense to me. Of course, we'll want to reconcile those two. And if not, I don't know what it is. What it is. I don't we really believe or are we intellectually lazy? But so many Quakers are college educated, you know, many in, with graduate degrees and so on. Why wouldn't we want to do that work? So you can tell that part of my concern among Quakers and, and pastors in general, social justice people in general, is do the homework, do the vision work that enables you to persuade people who don't buy your ethics, in other words, be able to go to non-pacifists, as nearly all of the students in my class were non-pacifists. Almost all of them believed in a military, right? They set right to work and they did a brilliant job, given you know, because I gave them a context and I gave them a set of tools. That's what I think we could be doing all the time. And if we were to do that, I think the Society of Friends would be growing like mad at this time when so many people are bereft of vision. Our government is notorious for disavowing vision. And we're shrinking as a society when we should be growing because there are people with that need that we could meet. The, the Pentagon heard about this, by the way, phoned me up and said, we hear what you're doing in Swarthmore. We want you to come down and tell us what you're doing. So I went to the Pentagon and met with a policy planning unit. The Pentagon has a lot of civilians in it. People don't necessarily know that. Civilians who are working on various defense problems that the United States faces so this was a group of experts on terrorism, and they wanted to know what I was teaching at Swarthmore. So I told them, look, you are the counterterrorism experts. I'm not. So you are people who I think will be able to give me terrific feedback. I know a lot about my field, but it isn't counterterrorism. So I'll lay out what we do, as you asked, and then I want very frank and honest feedback. You know, what are the holes? What are the problems that you see? Because I thought, wow, this is a great learning possibility for me, right? So I laid it out, and they just sat there. It was about eight, nine people. I turned to the chief, and I said, no, I really am serious. This isn't like, you know, I'm not a... We don't have to be nice guys here. I want you to really point out the problems and flaws in what I've laid out. And he said, well, I know the body language of my unit, my colleagues, and it's clear nobody sees a major problem in what you're laying out. What? <laughs> what? Then why no, aren't we doing it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly what I said. That was my response. Exactly. I said, well, in that case, let's go to the Oval Office. <laughs> And he, he leaned back and he smiled and he said, okay, I have to let you in on how our government works. He says, our government works in this way. We never go to the Oval Office and have a dispute with colleagues from other departments. We always go with a consensus proposal that's already been checked with the other department heads, if the other department heads have something to do with the proposal, right? So he said, this proposal, because it is macro strategy that you've developed, or not a strategy you've developed, but a set of tools that you've developed, we would need to check in with commerce. We would need to check in with state, of course, and the other departments that are relevant. And what nearly always happens in such 
innovative proposals is you go to one department and that uh, cabinet secretary says, well, that's all fine except for this. And then somebody else says, that's all fine except for that. And someone else says, that's all fine except for that. So by the time they have subtracted all the things that have to do with them, (laughs) that they have a problem with, what you're left with is pablum, the lowest common denominator, something not even worth the president's time. So he said, we all know, or those of us in the know, in D.C., know that's the way our government works. And that's why our government can never do anything bold or innovative, because it's always canceled out by this process of decision making. So I thought, well, thank you, because I have learned something today. I didn't learn what I was hoping, but I learned something about why it is that speaking truth to power cannot work with the federal government as it's presently constituted. It's because it has an internal logjam that prevents truth from being executed because there's some department somewhere, there's veto power in the process of decision-making itself. That was very valuable for me to learn, but I'm not a political scientist, so... I'm a sociologist, so it would have been even better if I'd been a political scientist. But anyway, that's our little trip with nonviolent responses to terrorism. And you can see I'm still very, very passionate about it. I have written about it, by the way, in my column on wagingnonviolence.org. Wagingnonviolence.org is where I write quite frequently on the kinds of problems that vex us as activists and some of the frontier issues that are tough for us to figure out. Well, one of the reasons I have you here is to talk about your influence, and Bayard Rustin is certainly one of them. Can you imagine, assuming back in the 1950s into the 60s, that the U.S. could have hired as president a gay black man who was Quaker in addition? If he would have, could have done the job, could he have implemented the kinds of visions that I think are near and dear to your heart? Okay, you know that my previous book is Viking Economics, right? Right. The Norwegian Swedes, Danes, had a lot going for them in terms of ability. They had homogenous cultural societies and so on and so on. They had a lot going for them as compared with the U.S. They were not running empires, for example. We were running an empire, still are. So they, you could say, had a head start by the very nature of their composition to be able to achieve great things in terms of getting rid of poverty, in terms of equality, that sort of thing, right? Even so, they had to get rid of the power block in their society, not get rid of in the sense of extinguish, but they had to remove the political power of the economic elite in their countries in order to be able to start on the road that has led to their being the best example in the world today of the Quaker testimony of equality. They are the most egalitarian of any country in on the world. And they were not able to do that as long as their economic elite was running their countries, which they had been doing for centuries, because the economic elite did not find it in their interests to advance equality, to get rid of poverty. In fact, they benefited from equality, from poverty and so on and so on. So if those countries had to wage what amounted to a nonviolent revolution, and I mean, if that's what they did, they had to develop mass movements that went to the streets, that went to the workplaces, that non-cooperated, that disrupted mass non-cooperation. The military was called out. The Swedish military did a massacre on unarmed activists in the streets and so on. The Nordics, uh, the Scandinavians had to go through all that in order to force 
the openness to create the most effective economic model that exists up until now for the benefit of people, for shared prosperity, the most democratic countries, the most individual freedom of any countries uh, that have, they have way more individual freedom than we do, way more. So they were able to get these big achievements, even though they had a lot going for them, because there was a block, there was a power block. Now, is there a power block in the United States? <laughs> is there an economic – do we have what the uh, Occupy forces called the 1%? So Princeton University political scientists decided to do a study to answer that question. So they studied two decades' worth of decision-making on the federal level. I think they came up to the year 2006 or something like that, before the recession. Okay, So for a couple of decades of federally made decisions – they looked at every single one. Each one, they asked themselves the question, is this decision supported by the majority or opposed by the majority? Is it supported by the economic elite or is it opposed by the economic elite? Then they crunched their numbers. What they found was almost every decision that would have been supported by the majority, that is the majority had an opinion, but the economic elite had a different opinion. It was the economic elite's opinion that won. Almost every single time. So at the end of, and this is very easy to Google, you just Google the oligarchy study, Princeton oligarchy study. The political scientists who did this did not themselves use that word oligarchy, but BBC in covering that study did call it the oligarchy study. So it's easy to Google it by just Googling uh, the oligarchy study Princeton. But anyway, the bottom line is that what they proved even before Citizens United, you know, the Supreme Court's decision that allows even more money to be dumped in our elections and so on. Even before that, the economic elite had been running the country. In other words, the, what the political scientists did say in their summary was, if democracy means majority rule, that's not what we have. Now, could Bayard Rustin or anyone, <laughs> could you, could I, go into the White House and make things happen that the economic elite doesn't want to happen? No, not unless we're willing to do a dictatorship. Conceivably, if we got the Pentagon on our side, we could do it. But no, our present form of government, and it's been true for quite a while, is one in which it's the economic elite that makes almost every single major decision. Barack Obama said in his campaign for president, he wanted Medicare for all, you know, the single payer system that Canada and the Scandinavians have. That's what he said he wanted. He also said, we're not going to get that. Why? Because he knew he didn't have to do the Princeton study. He already knew that whatever you want, it doesn't matter that the majority wants it. If the economic elite doesn't want it, you don't get it. Barack Obama also said, when I go into office, of course, the, the news people were hounding him about this. They said, you're going to walk into a, an economic mess because the economy is headed toward the cliff. What are you going to do? He said, well, the sensible solution would be what the Swedes did when their bankers went crazy and headed Sweden toward the cliff, which was in the early 90s, 1990s. And he said what they did would be the sensible thing for us to do. But we can't push them that. over the cliff. Huh? <laughs> well, push no, them over the, the cliff, what, right? What uh, in Sweden was the government stepped in, seized the three largest banks, which were the three biggest culprits, seized the banks, fired the senior management, made sure the shareholders didn't get a dime. And then slowly rehabilitated the banks under uh, public ownership 
to become decent, responsible banks instead of the irresponsible banking that had been done by the Swedes at that time and has been done by the United States bankers and still is. So what we've got is a very practical guy, Barack Obama, who had a lot of vision of what he wanted, like Single payer, Medicare for all, yes, of course, that banks and the financial sector should be responsible to the common good. He wanted that. He thought that would be sensible. I'll bet everybody in your in the room you're in now, <laughs> Grinnell, would agree. And also, Obama knew perfectly well there was no way to get that because he knew who is in control. So it doesn't matter who's in president. The Obama can be Bayard. It could be Lucretia Mott. It could be anybody. It doesn't matter who's in there. You can't get things that the economic elite doesn't want you to have. And therefore, you have to overthrow the economic elite, which is what the Scandinavians figured out. They just figured it out. They noticed what was going on over time. They didn't have a Princeton study. They figured it out without it. And they said, okay, so what we have to do, obviously, is engage in a power struggle. We can do that nonviolently. They understood. They didn't have to do the Soviet thing. We can do a nonviolent struggle, push out the veto power of the economic elite, and then we can take over our countries and create the society we want. So that's why I wrote my new book, How We Win, because the new book starts where my Viking economics book ends up, which is saying, hey, if we want what the Scandinavians have, we're going to have to do what they did, right? So the new book says, oh, and here's what how they did it, or uh, translated into the American context, which is quite a different context. So I, it has, it's quite a different book from the one they would write, but it's geared to our circumstances and our culture and our particularities. <laughs> I'm going to come back in a moment to my comment about Bayard Reston. But first, I want to remind folks you're listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. Say that together. NorthernSpiritRadio.org, and it's O-R-G because we're organic, not commercial. On that site, you'll find my other interviews with George and so many other people over the last 14 years we've been doing this. There's links to them. There's also my Song of the Soul program, and we've got a number of other podcasts that are on there, too. So the Citizens Climate Radio podcast is there. You'll now see something called Bible Bash, which is a wonderful thing. You should only be so fortunate as listening to. All those things are on northernspiritradio.org, place to post comments. And so when you listen to programs like this, please rate the program and post a comment and give us two-way feedback. We need to have two-way communication in order to really learn from one another. There is a feedback loop that we need. There's also a donate button. This is full-time work. We're not supported by commercial, corporate interests or government. It's by listeners. So please donate when you come. Even more important, and I hope, George, you can echo this. It's so vital to have alternative forms of media because just as the Princeton study that you referred to indicated, when you get very large economic interests in control of things, and in the United States, more than 90% of our media are in just six different corporation hands, 90% of our media. So community radio stations and alternative newspapers locally, all of that are extremely invaluable. So please start by supporting them. Do you have comments on that, George? No, I completely agree. I completely agree. Our, our media's uh, situation is turning into a desert. 
And it really is up to us at the grassroots to support voices like yours that keep going decade after day. It's amazing. And I appreciate so much you doing that. By the way, Mark, I just want to ask for feedback about my voice. Iowa seems so far from Philadelphia. I've been yelling and I probably don't need to yell. Does my mic work? Can I just talk? Yeah, we don't need to wear out your voice. So if you speak more softly, it's okay. Well, it is good to have you here with us from over in Philadelphia all the way here to Iowa. That's a, it's, it's wonderful to bring you into this room where we have a number of participants from the Friends General Conference gathering held this year in Grinnell. Next year in Virginia, you wouldn't have to yell nearly as loud, right? There we go. I'll come to Virginia. <laughs> I hope. And remember, folks, there's many places you can find media and books and such by George Lakey, and I do have them linked on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, but WagingNonviolence.org is a very good site to go to to follow George Lakey's thought. And you've been doing this for a number of years. I imagine if you were born in 37, you must be about 82 years old, something like that? Soon get to 82. Be a good birthday to hit. I was going to comment that you are one of my inspirations for what it's like to be a friend. And you already referred to Bayard Rustin, who's one of the influential people for you. Tell us a little bit about Bayard Rustin. I already mentioned that he was gay, he's black, he's a Quaker. Those are three things that weren't at the top of the popularity list back in the 1950s. One of the biggest things I learned from him, because I got to watch him in so many different contexts, different meetings, different kinds of work, giving a speech in a Harlem church. I've seen him in so many different contexts. And one of the things that so impressed me and I've tried to do myself is his ability to read the room wherever he was and do the role that seemed needed that nobody else was filling. So he wasn't uniform. He didn't always say, follow me, I've got the plan. And other times he would say, I wonder what the plan might be. And he'd ask a few questions because he sensed that there were people being a bit quiet who'd actually thought this through. Sometimes he was the most fiery person on the platform. Another time he'd be behind the scenes toning somebody else down. He was incredible. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the settings in which you saw Bayard at work. The March on Washington, my understanding is that he was one of MLK's lieutenants, one of the chief organizers that was involved in this. But because he was gay and because people were afraid that if this got out, it would bring disrepute to the whole organization and to the whole movement, he was kept less in the limelight, kept off to the side. But you must have seen him in a number of other situations where he's organizing. Could you comment a little bit about that whole situation with Bayard Rustin? Yes. Well, he knew uh, it was his view. There was so much homophobia in the land that it would be a mistake for him to be out. Um, He was taken aside when he was a student at Cheney, which was the college I graduated from, historically black college just outside Philadelphia. Uh, College, by the way, started by Quakers. Uh, Anyway, uh, the Quakers sold it to the state of Pennsylvania in about 1920. Byard went there as an undergraduate for a while, for a year or two. He was out then. As a teenager, he thought, well, of course you're true to yourself. Of course you're authentic. Why not? So President Leslie Pinckney Hill took him aside and said, Byard, you can be as authentic as you want. It's nothing on me for you to choose that. I totally respect you. However, 
my understanding, I've heard you say over and over, you want to play a role in the political world as a fierce advocate for civil rights and for peace and so on. And I just have to tell you, it won't work. You can't do both. You can't be out. I mean, you can be gay in private life, but you can't be out and meet that dream. So Bayard was convinced by that. And and then every once in a while, it would become known. It became known when he was arrested in Los Angeles because he was he was making love with a man in the backseat of a car and the police. One of these outrageous things police did for so many decades arrested him. So then it was a public arrest. He was on the staff, National Staff of Fellowship Reconciliation at that time. A.J. Musty felt he had to fire him because of that, even though it was a heartbreaker to let go of one of the most talented people in the peace movement. So uh, that was a huge reinforcement then for Bayard of what Dr. Hill had told him. You really have to be super, super careful to stay as deeply in the closet as you can. And so that was his mode of operation, and it was uh, it was very hard on you know many people knowing that he was having to do that. You proposed to me that the topic you'd speak about today, and folks, we are speaking with George Lakey. Follow him at wagingnonviolence.org. You proposed to me the topic that what you've learned about nonviolence from Bayard Rustin and other Quakers who preceded me. Right now, I've heard you talk about Bayard Rustin, but there must have been other influences, and I'm not sure we've got all the lessons yet that you've learned about nonviolence from these folks. Continue dragging us down this road to, uh, to learning. Sure. Well, one of the things I learned from him is over and over and over, he said, look for the people in motion and go there. In other words, way easier to find people spontaneously rising up and go there and help them and coach them to make it a success than it is to start from scratch with people who are sitting around saying, it's hopeless, it's hopeless, I'm full of despair. Starting from the despair place was not Bayard's idea. It's just so inefficient. What is smart and effective is to go to where people are. So as soon as, for example, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat for a white man in Montgomery, Alabama, Bayard quickly went down there. That's the people in motion. So I've tried to be responsive in that way. That is, use my eyes and ears and the lens of a sociologist to look at society and figure out where are people ready to go into motion. And then if I have skills to offer, that's where I should offer them. Another big thing that I learned from Bayard that he said, I can't tell you how many times I've heard him say that in a variety of rooms. So this would be 63, 64, around in there. He was saying, look, now that we're a mass movement, now that we're front page news, this is the time when we have to go ahead and handle this economic justice issue. Because if we don't handle the economic structure in this country, 50 years from now, there will still be ugly racism. Mm, wow. How prescient. Wow. How clear. We did not handle the economic justice question, right? The economic elite sallied forth. Now we're more and more unequal. Some economists believe we've never been this unequal in the whole history of the United States. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse because when the mass movement was most alive, the civil rights movement, and when labor was also beginning to make common cause, 
and it was a powerful movement, there was the chance to do what I call a movement of movements, that is, movements working together in order to do what the Scandinavians did, that is, push the economic elite out of the way, and then we would have a chance for equality, we'd have a chance for democracy, and so on. We haven't done that yet, but that's the vision that Bayard had all those many years ago, and I got the vision from him. I realized if you just talk racism, you're going to miss an opportunity right now. This is an opportunity for us to move the time. This is a time when the economic elite is so scared that according to the New Yorker, there are a number of super rich people in this country who are buying property like crazy in New Zealand with landing strips so they can go there if they need to. And they are buying condos in old missile sites that are no longer needed by the Strategic Air Command. They're buying condos in these deep places with armed guards at the top and, of course, a landing strip, right? So people on, in Fifth Avenue apartments or wherever they live will be able to get quickly to New Zealand or the Midwest, whichever they want or whichever they have uh, they own, in order to escape us because they're the fantasy that exists among some super wealthy people in this country is we can't scam them forever. They are going to come after us. You know, it's almost like the pitchforks <laughs> in the French Revolution, you know, farmers coming with the peasants coming with pitchforks. <laughs> We won't do it that way. We're smart enough to do it nonviolently as the Scandinavians did. But anyway, that is their understanding that this, this situation they are presiding over and exacerbating is actually not viable. It isn't viable, of course. It isn't. But the point is, some of them have gotten it that it isn't viable. And there is the chance more and more people, Sunrise Movement has moved into my third floor here in my house. I had, uh, we had 20 young people in my living room last evening talking in depth about social change. Social uh, Sunrise Movement is the, responsible for the Green New Deal, right, which is a visionary thing that's all the buzz in Washington, D.C. So this is a phenomenal move, a time for us to move. But what we're going to have to do is follow Bayard's lead and not obsess about climate as a single issue. Climate crisis is not a single issue. Race Racism as a single issue, it is not a single issue. Class struggle is not a single issue. None of these is a single issue. And we, of all people, I have such a such pride in Quakers. We, of all people, should be able to see things whole. We should be able to go beyond the single issue approach and be able to see what young folks are now calling intersectionality. Used to be called holism, right? Used to be called Kenneth Boulding was constantly talking about it. Quaker economist Kenneth Boulding was always talking about it as systemic. He kept saying, look, we live in a system. If we don't address the system, we're not going to get the change we want. So Byard was saying that in his own way. And, and for me, as a youngster, a very compelling way. And I've tried to, I've tried, uh, sometimes failed, but I've tried to pursue his perspective. Actually, my impression is that you succeeded massively. Uh, the training for change, uh, people really have to learn about and, and profit from. And what's happened with the Earthquaker action teams, small, clear goals and making a difference. 
and of course, you've been involved with that, and your daughter, Ingrid, has been involved with that, and a number of other people who you've passed on the lessons to, the lessons you got from Bayard Rustin and others. Are there other influences besides Bayard that you'd refer to as primary teachers for you in terms of nonviolence and activism? Lucretia Mott was very important to me because she was a member of my meeting. And the reason why that mattered to me was because I've not always been an insider in my meeting. I've not always been in the mainstream of my meeting. Uh, In fact, some people think of me as having played, in relation to Society of Friends as a whole, having played a a somewhat prophetic role, a bit on the fringe. Uh, For example, I came out publicly in 1972 as a gay man to a thousand Quakers in Ithaca at French General Conference gathering. 1972 was very, very early for somebody to come out as gay to a thousand Quakers. Within a week, Japanese Quakers were talking about it. So I have this uh, history of challenging Quakers to be our best, to be our most authentic Quaker selves from a place of, well, from a challenging place, right? So that's a kind of traditionally prophetic role. Well, Lucretia Mott was exactly the same. She was doing stuff there were many Quakers who were frowning on. She would walk down the streets of Philadelphia with a black person chatting amiably. Outrageous. <laughs> How outrageous. Oh, my goodness. Outrageous. Against the city ordinance. The mayor, who knew Lucretia Mott, said, Lucretia, you've got to stop this. We don't want to arrest you for it, but it's outrageous what you're doing. Well, there were plenty of Quakers saying, Lucretia, it's not comely to do it. It's not you know, appropriate to do this, not respectable to do this. So I have identified a lot with Lucretia Mott's willingness not only to be intersectional, she could both see abolition of slavery and rights of women at the same time, right? She made these very, very strong connections. She was not a single-issue person. She was very interested in making connections, and she was very interested in coming at that in a prophetic way. It was okay with her to be ahead of her time and to be ahead of her meeting. And that was an enormous comfort to me because if you ask my Quaker meeting members today, members of my meeting today, is Lucretia Mott okay with you? (laughs) Another example, when I was one of the founders of a group called A Quaker Action Group in the 70s, which went, uh, 60s actually, in the 60s, which went after the Vietnam War in a prophetic way. We sailed a sailboat, the Phoenix to North Vietnam with medical supplies for the North Vietnamese Red Cross and so on. Tremendous uproar uh, in the country. The the government couldn't figure out what to do with it. It was just defiantly sailing through the United States 7th Fleet to get to North Vietnam with medical supplies. We were in violation with the Trading of the Enemy Act and all kinds of things, right? So I was co-chair of that group with George Willoughby. There we were doing that. The reason I bring it up is because there were many murmurs of, you know, among Quakers as we were doing it of, oh, well, this is really, you know, this is really. And then two years later, I happened to be going through Fourth and Arch, a Quaker meeting house that is the one that's tourist oriented. And so tons of tourists go through it. It's down in the historical district of Philadelphia for our listeners all over the country. Right, right. right. Philadelphia, uh, Fourth and Arch. It's a Philadelphia monthly meeting. And 
it's a tourist spot, right? So they have photographs all over the place and wonderful dioramas of William Penn, you know, William Penn getting from the king the deed for Pennsylvania, all these lovely, lovely exhibit. I love it. So two years, I think, or a year and a half after that Phoenix voyage that raised so many eyebrows among Quakers, there was a huge photograph of the Phoenix with a caption underneath bragging about how wonderful it was that Quakers we're you know, bringing medical aid to the enemy, as has been our historic practice uh, over centuries. We have seen human beings on all sides as deserving of medical aid, and we've been willing to deliver it to them. And so I guess what I'm saying about Lucretia Ma is, uh, even though, of course, no question about slavery or, or women's rights, but just influencing me as somebody who, to old age, was willing to be a prophet, even in her own meeting. And folks who are listening probably need to know, and, and George, you should know that to expose to the audience out there, Lucretia Mott, who a lot of people haven't heard of, is a Quaker who lived, She was her activist period, particularly in terms of slavery, then 1830s, 1840s, I guess into the 50s. So she was on the cutting edge at that point. I think it was in 1837, she went to England to the World Anti-Slavery Convention. She wasn't allowed to speak. Her husband, James, was allowed to be part of the speaking. And so she became very informed that women's roles needed to be changed. And so she became on that cunning edge when it was considered indecent for women to speak to a group with men and women. It was, it was so improper. Truly. Even though that was considerably different right within Quaker circles, still Quakers speaking to the public about an issue like nonviolence or war, or justice, equality, she was still running right at the edge of acceptability or, or, or getting feedback that was maybe even violent. I, I recall one situation, she stepped out of a meeting and there's a whole crowd there ready to attack. And she went to the lead person there and she engaged him individually and said, oh, it's so nice that you came to meet me. Would you walk me to my hotel? And here is the leader of the opposition <laughs> accompanying her in safety. Quite stunning take on the crowd herself. <laughs> So Lucretia Ma, when you said she's a member of your meeting, she was a member of your meeting more than 100 years before you arrived. Yes. <laughs> so you were involved with a Quaker Action group. I think you were involved with several other groups along the way. As a leader, as a follower, were there other contemporaneous leaders, inspirations, people who you want to draw on for the vision that you've helped nurture? Well, George Willoughby mentored me the longest. I've been lucky. Older people who've been around the block have been very generous in paying attention to me and uh, dealing with my stubbornness and whatever. And I've just learned so much from so many. But I want to just point out George Willoughby, uh, who was for many years the chair of the Committee for Nonviolent Action. And his, his partner, Lillian Willoughby, took me into their family and she she was one of the first people arrested for stepping over the line and going into a, a an air base where there were uh, I think it's actually um, yeah it was a U.S. Uh, Air Force base uh, and, and and there was a group of people starting to raise questions about the military industrial complex in that way it was a remarkable family 
able to do many wonderful things over many decades. And George, especially, he just took me on and decided to pay attention. And so we taught together, for example, in the Martin Luther King School of Social Change, where we gave an MA, a graduate degree in social change. Uh, he was a professor there, and so was I. There's just been so many times when we worked together. I do think we should mention some things from the Global Nonviolence Database because that's such an important resource, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm wondering if people here, anyone has ever consulted, used, uh, knows about the Global Nonviolence Database. How many? Wow. I have 11 people sitting in the audience here, and not one of them knows about it. Could you talk about that because this is such a wonderful resource there's another mentor of mine gene sharp was the inspiration for the database gene sharp was the guy who more than anyone else developed the scholarly field of nonviolent action i met him in oslo when i was studying at the university of oslo in norway and someone said hey you're interested in peace it seems like why don't you go see that american there's another american here at the university who's working on research so I said, okay. So I went to see this then very young guy in jeans who uh, was doing research on the Norwegian teacher's successful resistance to the Nazi effort. Remember that uh, Norway was occupied by the German army during World War II, and a Norwegian Nazi was the leader of the country, and it was his goal to force the teachers to knuckle under the Nazi regime. And the teachers were refusing. Nearly all the teachers were refusing. So there was this big struggle. The teachers won through their nonviolence, uh, non-cooperation, despite the fact that there was one German soldier per 10 Norwegians. That's how many Germans were there. And it's, so it's a very, very remarkable case of how, how powerful nonviolent action can be. So Gene Sharp, who was brought up in Ohio, you know, and, and an American, had uh, come over and then spent some time as editor of New Peace News in London and then came to Oslo to do that research. And he convinced me that we will get way, way farther in uh, practical application of nonviolent action if we do research on what works when people do it and they are successful? Let's find out why it's so successful sometimes. Isn't always. And what are people not doing well when it doesn't work? And that sounded so reasonable to me. So I came home to the uh, University of Pennsylvania and did my master's thesis on the subject of nonviolence, which almost nobody was doing research on at that time. And Gene and I stayed in touch for decades and decades. Okay, so... Uh, fast forward, now Gene has become an old man, actually. He passed last year. And uh, I'm wanting to do a project since I am teaching at Swarthmore, and Swarthmore was very, very supportive of any project I wanted to do. So I said, I know what. Swarthmore students love to work. Let's put them to work researching cases of nonviolent struggle. And we'll put it, them in a form a form that everybody can fit into so that the cases can be comparable and we'll make a database out of it, a searchable database, and we'll put it online so that it's available to people all over the world. So the result is, at this point, over 1,100 cases of nonviolent campaigns from almost 200 countries and available on, as close as the Internet is to you. You can just Google Global Nonviolent Action Database and you'll find it. And you can search to your heart's content. You can search American cases. You can search cases in your own state or your own city. 
You can search cases in uh, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, Latin America. You can search for cases in which dictatorships, military dictatorships were overthrown by nonviolent struggle. So it's a fantastic resource, and people are indeed accessing it from all over the world. And most of the cases are there through the hard work of Swarthmore students. So when you start organizing your campaign, folks, you don't have to start from zero. You've got a cadre of people who've experimented, learned, used alternatives, envisioned, imagined, and creative. There's so much there to be learned from the Global Nonviolent Action Database. And again, this is George Lakey, who ended up being a, a linchpin to make this happen with a lot of work by a whole lot of other people. And it continues, right? It's being added to all the time. It's growing all the time. Well, George, I understand that perhaps we have somewhat of a limited time, so I just wanted to ask if there's any last comments, inspirations, visions that we need to share with our listeners, where we should go from here. Just that this is a great time for us to be as bold as we've ever been in our lives. And if you don't think of yourself as having lived a bold life, now is a great time to start. Because the grandchildren, like those uh, 20-year-olds who were in my living room last night, are counting on us. They are facing a future that is toast, right? They're facing a present of economic inequality and racism and a whole lot else. And they are counting on us to back them up. They shouldn't be left to do it themselves. In fact, we could say, well, we could have let a left a better world for them, possibly. I'm 81 years old. I'm a great grandpa, actually. (laughs) I'm working very hard as an 81-year-old for the survival and chance for a decent life for my great-grandchildren. I have four great-grandsons. I want them to have a chance for a good life. But they now, at this moment, do not have a good chance, do not have a chance for a good life because of the trends that have been set in motion by people that we've gone along with, even though we haven't been making those decisions. So I think we just need to to get our act together and move forward. And that means scary, scary, scary. And that means get together with others. That's the story of Earthquake or Action Team. Get together with others. We discover the courage inside ourselves, which God is totally wrapped up in. But we discover it for ourselves personally by getting together with other people who will have our backs. Thank you for that inspiration, for a lifetime of work, for caring about future generations. We're working hand-in-hand with all those generations. That's one of the things I love about Earthquake or Action Team is it is so multi-generational. Folks, if you want to follow George Lakey, wagingnonviolence.org is one of the links you can find to him. We'll have more on northernspiritradio.org. George, always wonderful to sit down with you, and I'm so thankful that you were able to bring Philadelphia here to Grinnell, Iowa, for this visit. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for the chance, Mark. Can everybody say goodbye, please? Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks so much. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 